So you guys are in for a special treat today. I'm not preaching. Uh, Tom Cox is preaching today. Um, you guys have probably heard him before. He's an elder in our church. Um, and he's bringing a good word for us this morning from the Gospel of John. So let's uh, give it up for Tom. Thanks for sharing a word with us today. Thank you. Uh, as far as my sermon goes, the Mother's Day portion of the service is over. Uh, I don't have any Mother's Day. This is not a good Mother's Day passage, but uh, it's an interesting passage. And this would normally be the part of the service where we would read the passage. Um, but this morning's scripture reading is a little specific to a place and a time and attention, and it really doesn't make sense outside of that context. Uh, we are at the very end. We, we were in it last week, too, and, and today we come to the end of a section of the Gospel of John, which is called Jesus' Farewell Discourse, which is a very seminary-sounding word, but it's a uh, four-chapter intense farewell speech that Jesus gave to his, to his disciples, get this, between the Last Supper and the Garden of Gethsemane. They've eaten the bread and wine. Jesus washed their feet. Judas left to do what he was going to do. And now we have this, did I mention it goes on for four chapters? Speech. And here's the thing. It's not found in any of the other Gospels. And the things that Jesus says in it are not found anywhere else in the Bible. And I'm talking about some of Jesus' greatest hits. <laughs> I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, but they will do even greater things than these. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. We quote many of these things as things that Jesus said in his ministry. And he may have, but they don't appear anywhere else in the Bible. Other than this final, private, emotional, wisdom download with his follow followers. Now, as I've sat with this passage for a couple of weeks, this bothered me. Did the other gospel writers not think this was important to include? Or as the final gospel writer, did John decide to take, kind of invent a literary device and take some of the things that Jesus said that none of the other gospel writers had included, and maybe he put this in there? And so the logical part of my brain, the dumb animal part of my brain, had trouble with this. I couldn't put it in a historical timeline. But I'm happy to tell you that late in the week, the more mystic and contemplative and unicorn part of my brain <laughs> won over. And I was able to accept this rogue section of scripture as a beautiful gift from John, giving us a rare glimpse into the mind and the humanity of Christ just before he laid down his life. Contemplative uh, Cynthia Bourjolt describes this the, the, discourse, the, whole, the entire discourse, and she says, what flows forth from this moment is an extraordinary series of teachings whose entire message is of love brought to its glorious fruition. Even with death waiting in the wings, Jesus will allow no separation between God and humans, no separation between humans and humans, because the sap flowing through everything is love itself. In image after image, he tries to impart to his disciples his assurance that they can never be cut off from that love because their very beings are rooted in it. Now, this discourse reveals a Jesus who is heartbroken to leave his community, 
I think it's Jesus, probably at his most human, reveals a teacher who's very concerned about their readiness. These are not so much the prophetic words of an omniscient God who knows all things and, and exists outside of time. They're specific words intended for a distinct few at a particular moment. They're words of a departing teacher to his beloved pupils. They reveal his angst. This is a teacher who seems to wonder if he did enough to prepare them for what is to come. Will they make it on their own? Will they hide and isolate, withdraw into themselves? Will they be strong when persecution comes? Will they love each other and love others? Will his message stick? And at the very end, in the fourth chapter of this four-chapter speech, the fourth chapter is a prayer. It's his longest prayer in Scripture. So through chapters 14, 15, and 16 of John, he furiously downloads his message into them. And then in chapter 17, in front of his disciples, he prays to God for them. And that's where we arrive at this morning's passage. From the prayer of Jesus in John, chapter 17, verses 6 through 19. So I unlock my phone. Okay. You have given me some followers from this world, and I have shown them what you are like. They were yours, but you gave them to me, and they have obeyed you. They know that you gave me everything I have. I told my followers that what you told me, and they accepted it. They know that I came from you, and they believe that you are the one who sent me. I am praying for them, but not for those who belong to the world. My followers belong to you, and I am praying for them. All I have is yours, and all that you have is mine, and they will bring glory to me. Holy Father, I am no longer in the world. I am coming to you, but my followers are still in the world. So keep them safe by the power of the name that you have given me. Then they will, then they will be one with each other, just as you and I are one. While I was with them, I kept them safe by the power you have given me. I guarded them, and not one of them was lost except the one who had to be lost. This happened so that what the scriptures say would come true. I am on my way to you, but I say these things while I am still in the world so that my followers will have the same complete joy that I do. I have told them your message, but the people of this world hate them because they don't belong to this world, just as I don't. Father, I don't ask you to take my followers out of the world, but to keep them safe from the evil one. They don't belong to this world, and ne neither do I. Your word is the truth, so let this truth make them completely yours. I am sending them into the world just as you sent me. I have given myself completely for their sake, so that they may belong completely to the truth. The word of God for the people of God. This is perhaps, like I said, Jesus at his most human. It seems that he feels much as we do when he's being separated from those that we love, when we're separated from those we love. It's not an all-knowing deity, but a friend who truly worries about what is going to happen to them. As God, he should be aware that all of them, except for John, are going to suffer a martyr's death, but not this night. This night, this crucial time is about saying farewell to his beloved community, and he prays for them as a worried mother would. Oh, there's a little Mother's Day in there. Okay. <laughs> then, dropped right in the middle of this emotional prayer, is the bit about the disciple he lost, right? Didn't that sound like a commercial in the middle that just didn't belong? It's this um, bit about the disciple he lost so that scripture could come true, so that scripture could be fulfilled. It's like, hey, Jesus, I know this is a big night, super busy and all, 
But could you elaborate on that one a little bit? Judas. It almost sounds more like an accusation than a name, Judas. The name comes from the word Judah, which means God be praised. Yet you won't find any little Judases running around in the grade schools. You're not going to find the name in your baby books. Because this man is perhaps one of the darkest characters in all of scripture. He's a moral lesson, a cautious tale. There's almost a sadism in the way that we like to see him suffer. In one account of scripture, he hangs himself. In another, he falls forward and his guts burst open. In the 14th century poem Inferno by Dante, Dante travels down through the nine circles of hell. The lustful are, are confined to the second circle. The wrathful are stuck in the fifth. Murderers make up the seventh circle. Who's worse than murderers, right? Then in the pit of hell, the ninth circle is reserved for the sin of betrayal. And there, in the very lowest re region, sits the devil himself, wedged in a sea of ice. And Dante can see the legs of a man protruding from the devil's mouth. Who hath the worst punishment? Asked Dante's guide, Virgil. Judas, he that hath his head within and plies his feet without. For someone so famous, who played such a key role in the Passion Play, we really don't know a lot about Judas. And perhaps it should not come as a surprise to us that the Gospels offer varying depictions of why and, and how G Judas did what he did. Matthew and Mark include the only other appearance of Judas other than his betrayal. The only time he appears in Scripture other than his betrayal is when he was infuriated by Jesus' willingness to be anointed by an entire jar of perfume. Why the waste, Judas says. This ointment could have been sold for a large sum and the money given to the poor. The very next paragraph finds him storming to the chief priest, looking for a way to bring Jesus to ruin. Now, John includes this section also, but John twists the knife a bit. He includes a line afterwards where he says, he said this not because he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief. He kept the common purse and used to steal from what was put in it. Kind of sounds like the Monday morning quarterbacking of a guy who was like, I knew this guy was bad from the beginning. This paints the picture of a man pushed to evil by a toxic combination of self-righteousness and greed. But Luke's account of Judas' motivations is a little different. There's no mention of money. The chief priests and scribes were looking for a way to put Jesus to death. And then it says that Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was one of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers of the temple about how he might betray Jesus, Jude, uh, Jesus to them. And Luke's telling of it, Judas is like a pawn in a cosmological drama. And even in today's prayer, Jesus talks about Judas's betrayal as necessary for the fulfillment of Scripture, that it was necessary for Scripture to come true. And he talks of losing Judas as it is, it's already happened. It's done deal, even though he hasn't even gone to the Garden of Gethsemane yet. Did Judas have agency over his decisions and actions? And then plus, during, during the Last Supper, when Jesus predicted that one of them would betray him, none of the apostles said, hello, elephant in the room, Judas, he's talking about you. No, they all looked at themselves and they said, is it I? Is it I? Nobody suspected Judas at the time. They all looked to themselves as the possible betrayer. Now, now I'm really going to blow your mind. Did you know that there's a gospel of Judas? It was referenced by Arrhenius, the Bishop of Lyons, in the year about 180, but it wasn't discovered 
until in the desert of Egypt, they found a leather-bound papyrus manuscript in the early 1970s. That's the first time we knew it existed. This 26-page Judas text is said to be a copy in Coptic, made around AD 300 of the original Gospel of Judas, written in Greek the century before. And the, the story of this thing is like something out of Indiana Jones. Apparently the document circulated in the 70s and 80s among antiquities dealers in Egypt, untranslated, then Europe, and then finally it came to the United States, where it moldered in a safe deposit box in a bank in Hicksville, New York, for 16 years, before it was finally purchased in 2000 by a Zurich dealer, and then it was cared for and translated. And radiocarbon dating, ink analysis, multispectral imaging, and studies of the script and linguistic style all confirmed its uh, authenticity. And scholars maintain that there's no evidence of multiple rewriting. And the text begins with this intriguing beginning. This was like a, a line for a movie, could go in a movie poster. The secret account of the revelation that Jesus spoke in conversation with Judas Iscariot during a week, three days before he, they celebrated Passover. What? <laughs> in the text, Jesus asks Judas, as a close friend, to sell him out to the authorities, telling Judas that he will, be, he will exceed the other disciples by doing so. The Gospel of Judas portrays Judas Iscariot as not as a betrayer of Judas, but as his most favored disciple and a willing collaborator. And then there's the musical Jesus Christ Superstar, right? It's the passion play told through the eyes of Judas. And at the Last Supper, Jesus almost goads him to leave and betray him. And there's a great lyric in which Judas responds, you want me to do it. What if I just stayed here and ruined your whole ambition? Christ, you deserve it. It's a genius thought by the lyricist Tim Rice, who seems to suggest that Jesus needed Jesus, Judas's betrayal. Where would we be today without it? Now, I have my own cockamamie theory, and cockamamie theories are the best theories. My theory, Mike's going to love this, is that Judas was treating Jesus like the Hulk. Yeah, he just, look at him. Stay with me on this. David Banner never wants to be the Hulk. Right? Bad things happen. But when the Avengers need him, when metallic alien lizards are attacking the Earth, they don't need the mild-mannered genius uh, scientist. They need the Hulk. So they push Banner's buttons. In one Avengers movie, Scarlett Johansson pushes Banner off a building. We have a word for that in our, we call that murder. <laughs> but it's not because she knows that he's not going to die, that he's going to pop back up in the building as the Hulk and he's going to smash the enemy. What if Judas had more faith than all the other denying and doubting apostles? What if Judas thought, Jesus isn't going to die? He's the Son of God. I saw him walk on water. Last week he rose a guy from the dead. He's not going to die at the hand of piddly little soldiers, but he's taking his time dealing with this Roman thing, so I think maybe I've got to push some buttons here. So he sets things in motion to push Jesus off the building and make him act. It's just a theory but it wouldn't be the first time that someone wished God would act more like we want him to act, that, his, that our enemies would be his enemies. It wouldn't be the first time that someone tried to manipulate God into getting with our program. For all we don't know about Judas, there are some things we do know. There are some things that are clear. First is that Judas was not cool with the way things went down. This was not his intended outcome. And second, he was immediately remorseful. 
He wanted nothing to do with the money. And third, he was not able to receive grace and forgiveness. When in his prayer, Jesus indicates that Judas was the one he lost, he was not talking in evangelical lingo of salvation and damnation, saved and lost, heaven and hell. The Greek word he uses for lost literally means to be destroyed, to be killed. While Jesus was able to protect most of his apostles from harm and destruction, he was unable to spare Judas. After Peter denied Jesus, he experienced Easter. But after Judas betrayed Jesus, he bought a field, tripped and fell, and his guts burst open. He died alone in a field of blood. He died knowing that he was a sinner and perhaps thinking that God did not want him. There was no Easter for Judas, no resurrection. There was no light shining which the darkness could not overcome. Our brother, Judas. How is it that Judas, who betrayed Jesus once and was filled with remorse, became the villain, while Peter, who denied Jesus three times and wept bitterly, became the rock on which the church was built? When it comes down to it, what's really the difference between Peter and Judas? Not a whole lot. And maybe there's not a whole lot of difference between us and them, too. I was recently at a conference, I'm seated next to Autumn Brownlee, one of our therapists here at the church, and I don't know what it is about sitting next to a therapist that suddenly makes you start to confess, but it happens. <laughs> and I told her that since I had begun practicing things like meditation and contemplation, I felt very connected to God, but I had less need for, like, church services. I didn't need that spiritual injection every seven days when I was able to get it on my own every day in silence. To which she responded, well, we still need you there to hear from you. And I've been thinking about that ever since, not because I have much to say, which is really not much, but about why we need to, as the scripture says, not forsake the gathering together, which I've been guilty of later. We've been trying to get our house ready to sell, and so I've missed a lot of Sundays. And life does get in the way, but we all need to realize that part of the reason we gather here is not so much of what we get out of it, but what we bring to give to each other. And sometimes we just need to show up so that we can speak that word to someone else. We need to hear things from each other that we can't hear on our own. Nadia Bowles-Weber identifies, I think, the crucial ingredient that Judas was missing in his faith, and it made all the difference. Nadia says, Judas carried with him into that field the burden of not experiencing God's grace because he was removed from the community in which he could hear it. In Judas's ears, there was never placed a word of grace. And let me tell you, that's not something the sinner can create for him or herself. It is next to impossible in isolation to manufacture the beautiful, radical grace that flows from the heart of God to God's broken and blessed humanity. As human beings, there are not many things we can create for ourselves. Entertainment, or there are, there are many things we can create for ourselves. Entertainment, stories, pain, toothpaste, maybe even positive self-talk but it is difficult to create this thing that frees us from the bondage of self. We cannot create for ourselves God's word of grace. We must tell it to each other. It's terribly inconvenient and oftentimes uncomfortable way for things to happen. Were we able to receive the word of God through pious private devotion, through quiet personal time with God, the Christian life would be far less messy. But as Paul tells us, faith comes through hearing, and hearing implies having someone right there doing the telling. I grew up in a church where we said the Apostles' Creed every Sunday. 
in the middle of the Apostles' Creed, it talks of Jesus descending to hell on the Saturday between the cross and resurrection. Unlike Dante's trip, Jesus takes the keys of hell away from Satan, and he frees the captives there from their prison of guilt and shame and condemnation. It's called the harrowing of hell. And Frederick Buchner, a Presbyterian minister and author, talks about this in one of his sermons. Buchner imag imagines that one of Jesus' tasks that day was to visit with his old friend Judas to tell him things were all right between them. And let me tell you something. If there's no redemption for someone like Judas, then none of us stands much of a chance. Judas was with Jesus for three years. He heard all the stories and sermons. He saw the miracles. He broke bread and went on mission trips. And Jesus still lost him. If Jesus can lose people, no one is immune. People get lost all the time. All kinds of people, all walks of life. Some rich and, and famous, some living on the streets. Most of them are somewhere in between. Just two days ago, my brother informed me of the shocking death of his childhood best friend, David. I used to coach them in basketball. The guy had a great job, a house in Colorado Springs, a family he dearly loved, including two, two uh, teenage children. And this week, he took his own life. All I could tell my brother is that sometimes people get lost. Sometimes they hurt others. Mostly, they harm themselves. They reach for a gun or a heroin needle or a bottle of pills. They are lost. They cannot hear God's grace. They can't envision any kind of redemption for them as possible. They are lost. It's not for us to know why Judas walked a doomed, inevitable path, or whether he did. But when we hold him so far away from us and make him the other or evil or a monster, we learn nothing about the brokenness that runs so deep within each one of us. It's our Christian responsibility to enter into these broken places, his and ours. It's our deep and collective responsibility to share the love of God, the enduring grace of God, with everyone who will hear it. It's our responsibility, so important, to create safe spaces where stories can be shared, sins confessed, forgiveness extended, and healing begun. That's what the church is supposed to be. So let's keep talking about evils. Let's keep talking about racism. Let's work on things like fighting homophobia and working on sensible gun control. And let's support people with mental illnesses. All these things are part of the solution. But what are we to do on a weekly basis? What should the church do? We gather and welcome each other, strangers and longtime friends, into community and we remind each other about God's grace and acceptance. We all need the reminder that we may not belong to the world, but we definitely do belong. Let's make sure that no man or woman ever wanders into the field of blood, so lonely and afraid and ashamed that they do something they might regret forever. Let's be the church in the field of blood, pointing to the truth of God's always expanding, always redeeming love. Because you know what? Judas didn't know.